Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan Labreeze, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. Welcome to another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. My guest today is Alyssa Washuda, author of White Magic, out now from Tin House Books. It's a groundbreaking, interlocking essay collection Kirkus calls a fascinating magic trick of a memoir that illuminates a woman's search for meaning. Here is the majority of Kirkus's starred review of White Magic. Across ten interwoven essays that move through Washuda's life, she uses popular culture references, Fleetwood Mac, Twin Peaks, and the video game Oregon Trail 2, as guideposts in her own journey of understanding the world and her place in it. Washuda shifts her focus frequently from the history of the Seattle area to an in-depth discussion of horror movies to her search for an anti-drinking educational video she thought she saw as a teen. At the same time, she investigates the connections among magic, witchcraft, and her native heritage. The book breaks from traditional memoir in intriguing ways, including footnotes that speak directly to readers and an essay that begins by focusing on Twin Peaks and then slowly begins to emulate it, moving back and forth through time and showing the changing nature of narrative across shifting time frames. Throughout, Washuda is consistently honest about her own past and opinions, and she is unafraid to directly question readers, demanding engagement with the text. This book is a narrative, she writes. It has an arc, but the tension is not in what happened when I lived it. It's in what happened when I wrote it. Like I already told you, this is not just a recounted story. I am trying to make something happen and record the process and results. End quote. Alyssa Washuda is a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe, the author of Starvation Mode and My Body is a Book of Rules, and the co-editor of the anthology Shapes of Native Nonfiction, Collected Essays by Contemporary Writers. She is an assistant professor of creative writing at The Ohio State University, and after the break, she joins us from Ohio to discuss white magic. This message is brought to you by Patricia Hunt Holmes, author of Crude Ambition. In the early morning hours after a law firm's recruiting party on Galveston Island, a female intern is found lying on the floor, bruised, bleeding, and unconscious. The only other woman there takes her to the hospital, but the next day the intern is gone without a trace. Ten years later, crime and hubris bring the former intern back into the lives of those that hurt her. Only this time, she has the power, and the truth is finally brought to light. Former U.S. Congressman and author of The Grand Duke of Boise's Ranch, Bill Sarpalius, said, quote, In crude ambition, Patricia Hunt Holmes shows she knows Texas in the way Grisham knows Mississippi. Politics, environment, strong men and strong women, egos, oil, arrogance, influence, and hunger for power. I don't think anyone could have nailed it better, 
end quote. You can find Crude Ambition in paperback on Amazon. This message is brought to you by Glenn Dyer, author of The Ultra Betrayal. One man's dark deal with the Nazis could bring the Allies to their knees. Autumn 1942. Rule breaker OSS agent Connor Thorne is assigned a mission to help the Allied war effort when a key Swedish cryptographer stationed in England goes missing. Thorne is determined to find him before critical information falls into enemy hands. But when his M16 colleague vanishes trailing the codebreaker to Stockholm, Thorne is plunged yet again into a sinister Nazi conspiracy. The Ultra Betrayal is the second novel in the thrilling Connor Thorne spy series. New York Times and number one internationally best-selling author Steve Barry praised the book's, quote, tantalizing premise set among the ominous atmosphere of World War II. Their sizzle and plot twists galore. More than enough to satisfy any thriller reader, end quote. You can find The Ultra Betrayal on Amazon in Kindle, hardcover, and paperback. Welcome, Melissa, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so just to get it rolling, what's what's publication and promotion been like for White Magic? Um, I see you had a great list of conversation partners for some events, and, and there's still more to come. It's been really great and really weird. It's just a completely <laughs> new experience for me to be doing all of these online readings. And the timing of it is so interesting because... You know, people are kind of being able to see each other in person a little bit more. At least for me, I'm remembering a little bit more what life was like before the pandemic in a more visceral way. So there's that sort of energy. And and yet there's this reminder in doing these readings that I'm able to pack all of these events into such a short time period with friends who are all over the U.S. and Canada. And so it's been really just so energizing to talk about my book and to, you know, talk about other books that have come out this season. It's just such a great season for books. <laughs> I'm so I agree and I'm so ha- <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that because it's like, you know, your your work, your essays, your we'll get into the particular, you know, vocabulary if we must <laughs> in a little bit, but like they're they're associative, they're intertwined and like they reflect the culture. They they make a lot of nods to the internet and like the literary world on Twitter and beyond and now like the literary world of Zoom, like all of the many connections there and the things that spring from those associations I find really endlessly fascinating. Yeah, I think I realized so much more than before in the process of writing this book and, you know, starting to teach at Ohio State and thinking and talking about nonfiction all the time. (laughs) I really was able to see so much more how the associations between ideas and texts and people really drove my, my essays. They, just those, I guess, synergistic, you know, points of connection are really at the heart of what I'm fascinated by and what I want to do in the essay. Right. And it, it, the, your essays reminded me that, like, you know, there's a, we want 
we want a common language. A common language you know, is kind of like a two-sided coin or a double-edged sword, you know, like to use whatever old tired metaphor I can <laughs> dig out of my pocket. But it's just like it, there's so so much beauty in that synergistic, in that coming together and that, that understanding that we build, while at the same time, sometimes when we t- talk about publishing as an industry, it can have a flattening effect on what types of books are published or how we judge what is good or prize-worthy writing. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, something that is at the heart of my process and mm. I think is really part of the the work that I'm drawn to is doing something new with really familiar material. And the new thing is the writer's passion about it or um, problems with it or, you know, fascination, curiosity. I think that that just enlivens the subject matter so much in a way that, you know, that that's such a feature of the books that I love. Well, I love your book. And I want to give like a hospitable, open question that could take us in a thousand different directions. And that would be, what, what did you want to explore in White Magic? It took me a long time to figure that out because uh. I was not really, you know, I knew that that's how I wanted to approach essay writing. After writing my first book, My Body is a Book of Rules, I, I knew how to write essays. Mm. And uh, at the same time, I completely forgot how to write essays. <laughs> um, and I, I really lost that part of, you know, myself and my curiosity and my passion mm. that I was just talking about. I didn't really want anything from, you know, my own mind at that point. And it it took me a while to start feeling that, um, I don't know, that sense of adventure in research. Yeah. It was years before I really got there. And so, you know, when I did get there, that was in late 2017. And I had some pieces of this book. I, Mm. I had a, you know, I had a sense that it was about colonization and Mm. about magic and, you know, and about revisiting my trauma that I'd already written about and, you know, writing about new developments. But I didn't know how it was all going to cohere, what the questions were going to be, what the things, what were the things I needed to figure out? I didn't know. Until 2017, when I realized I was just spending time that could have been spent writing, looking at my ex-boyfriend's astrological chart. And, right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Googling him and, you know, rereading all of his text messages. That was my research mm-hmm. into, you know, this person who I, I still believed I had a chance with because he seemed a little bit interested and I, you know, was still infatuated. And yeah. I realized that's that can be a subject for a book because I don't have any other subjects. That's what I want to <laughs> think about. That's what I want to write about. So let's see what I can do. Well, it turns out the answer is a lot. And better than 400 pages. Yeah. One, one thing I felt this book asking me to do, I try to take every book I read on its own terms. I try to figure out, like, what's going on here? What's the project? And how, how do you want to be read? This, your book told <laughs> me specifically to slow it down. You know, like mm-hmm. this is a book I read over several days when usually I plow through a book in four to six hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Teaching creative writing, I 
you know, we have the the sort of cliche ways of addressing the fact that, you know, we can't be, the writer can't be present when the reader is reading something to tell them how to read it right? and all of that. And, you know, when the reader's interpretation is, um, is not fully up to me as a writer, I knew all that. But I am kind of a, I have a very hard time letting go of uh, control of my work. (laughs) And having made a decision to really get the book manuscript so not only done, but, you know, as perfected as I could before trying to publish it, I think I developed this sense of intimacy with the book that made me feel all the more possessive of other people's reading experiences. I mean, it's probably not great. My control stuff is never great, but <laughs> but I did, you know, try not to pretend it wasn't there. I think that one thing that I have learned over the course of my writing career is that if I'm going to be doing something new and unfamiliar to many of my readers, usually formally, Mm. I need to meet them somewhere. I need to have a sense of what expectations they might be bringing to the work, what potential effects my choices will have on their reading. And ultimately, I do want the reader to have a good experience with the book. I want them to be surprised. I want them to feel their curiosity engaged. I want them to feel that experience of magic that I'm trying to tell them about. And so there were times in the book late in the revision process Hmm. where it became clear that some of the things that I hoped would be working on readers weren't necessarily apparent. Hmm. And I needed to go a little bit further in making things clear um, in regards to how readers should or could approach the book. And at at some point, I think this happened in my teaching or it happened in the course of writing this book. I just thought, what if I just tell the reader what I want them to do, Mm. you know, rather than, you know, adding to the reader's cognitive load to make them figure out, you know, what's happening in so many different areas of the text? What if I just tell the reader how the book is structured? What if I ask them questions about who they are as a reader, what expectations they bring to the text so that, you know, they can, we can get closer to meeting somewhere? I kind of really love this because it was a very positive reading experience for me and it changed my opinion of, you know, the scope of what a reading experience could be. And it was sort of like a little bit of a, a flavor of like informed consent. Like I, I, I respected your power as the author here. And I made the choice to, to continue and to, to try to, to take the, the direction when offered. Yeah. I think that, you know, this is something that I think about all the time because of teaching and, and, you know, yeah. writing and reading, but how do I know whether a book is good or not. Mm. How do I, how do I know, (laughs) you know, how do I know whether an essay is working or not working? You know, we're not supposed to, in creative writing workshops, we're not supposed to say we liked something or didn't like something, but (laughs) 
But I've been kind of trying to go back toward that a little bit in my teaching and in my mm. thinking about books because it's subjective. Right. But, mm. you know, I have to think about, I, I like to center my experience of a book or an essay or whatever piece of writing in my personal reaction to it. Yeah. I liked it. I didn't like it. I was bored <laughs> by it. I was confused. I was intrigued. I didn't want to stop, whatever. That's my reaction. And then from there, we can talk about why, what, like, why did the text have that effect on me? You know, I, I think that at some point, especially writing things that I wanted to be a little bit challenging for readers, not challenging as in difficult, but, but challenging yeah. the expectations of the book. At some point, I did need to accept <laughs> that not everybody was going to like my writing. Mm. And, that that's okay. Everybody gets to have their own experience of a book. But yeah, I think that that idea of informed consent, I do think that that is, that, that is something that I want to be a feature of, you know, the experience of the book. It's a very long book. You can, mm. you know, see that it's pretty heavy. <laughs> um, so you can see that, you know, it's, it's a book that's going to maybe take a while to read. You know, I talk upfront about the fact that it's about trauma and mm. give an encapsulation of that history. So that's there too. You know, some people want that kind of reading experience and some people don't. And that's all fine with me. You're you're more magnanimous than I would be on on your behalf. <laughs> I have to be though. I have to be or I'll you know, I'll just be upset all the time. But I don't, I don't want that for you. <laughs> I don't want that for you. But, oh. I, you know, I've been thinking about this in terms of, you know, some of the books and video games in particular that I love. Mm. Um, yeah. I played The Last of Us 2 a lot last year, uh, many times. And it's a very, very dark plot. Mm. It's very grim. And that actually made me feel better in a way to be immersed in something that was that hor horrific. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why, but that that helps me um, with my own pain. That does not help everybody with their own pain. Right. So right. I know that like, you know, I've thought a lot about the fact that we all get to have our own experience and there's books out there for all of us. Um, some of us get to have our own form. Um, you know, full disclosure, I watched a video. Well, I watched many videos in preparing for our talk today. I saw young Phil Collins, Lindsay and Stevie, uh, Nick, you know, yes. I saw some Twin <laughs> Peaks. But specifically, I watched a video of you um, speaking about white magic at the 2019 Creative Capital Artist Retreat. And in, in, in that video, you're saying, you know, some people might call them lyric essays or, you know, like linked essays. I have my own term for this form, exquisite vessel. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So as an academic, I love to make up my own terms for things. I have yes. lots of them. <laughs> I have many. <laughs> but yeah, you know, so I came up with the idea of the exquisite vessel when I was in the process of working with my friend Teresa Warburton mm. on our anthology, Shapes of Native Nonfiction, Collected Essays by Contemporary Writers. Cool. So I was coming to the work of putting that anthology together. I was coming to that from a place of starting to think about form in a really material way mm -hmm. and thinking about form as containers. When I teach, I, I my explanations of things are very driven by 
analogies. And, and I was talking a lot about different sizes of containers, different shapes of containers to fit different contents, you know, like a, a pill bottle is meant to hold pills. It cannot hold an apple. It could hold some thumbtacks, right? A basket could hold pills or apples or thumbtacks. And, Mm. and the use of the form can be applied to different, different materials, but not an unlimited number of, of different materials. Right. The essay, similarly, you know, we have all of these different approaches to form and some of them will be better suited than others for different stories that we have to tell. So that's how I got th- thinking about Exquisite Vessel. I wanted to come up with some way to talk about essays that really announced their form, mm. that, you know, the form might be, you know, completely innovative, something we've never seen before. It might not. Regardless, it's exquisite. It's a it's beautiful form that is apparent to the reader that the reader needs to pay attention to in order to fully understand the meaning of the essay. And in the anthology, Teresa and I wrote about that in terms of basket making, um, mm. Coast Salish baskets. So that's that's sort of how I that's how I've always written essays. I've always been really interested in form and form that makes itself really apparent to the reader and can't be ignored by the reader. Mm, I love it. So too do I love your epigraphs. Um, There's one in particular (laughs) I really want to talk about because it's one that gets repeated throughout the book and it's from Alice Notley. You don't happen to, you don't happen to have it memorized, do you? (laughs) Oh my gosh. No, I don't. I probably, I probably I probably could recite it if if really pressed. Yes, I will not press you. I have the page right here, and this is this is my. It's it's laid out in a particular way, and this is just my pacing and phrasing. I'm sure that you know a hundred different interviews would read it a hundred different ways. So this is from Alice Notley. All my life since I was ten, I've been waiting to be in this hell here with you. All I've ever wanted, and still do. Okay, so I have a ton of questions about this and Alice. Um, why, first of all, why did you choose to feature this and, and more than once in, the, in this book? What does it mean to you? So I just love it. Every single yeah. time I hear it, I, you know, or read it, I get chills. I do. Yeah. I just love that poem so much. I first saw it on Twitter. Um, I believe Astro Poets tw- tweeted it out and... I, I would see it every so often. It seemed like a lot of people were really responding to that poem, just as I was. I chose it for an epigraph because at the time that I got the idea to do this weird thing with epigraphs, I was just really thinking about the book as being driven by this experience of living within settler colonialism. Mm. And all of the hellish conditions that, you know, has that, that it brings with it and how desperately I wanted to have someone to love in that and do want to have someone to love, you know, I, and heartbreak, I think seems like maybe a trivial subject for a book you know it's not it's not the the stuff of important 
books, you know, the great books are not about, you know, my failed relationship of three months. And yet it was so profound to me that the pain of that breakup. And I think through getting through writing this book, I, I needed to explain to myself and to other people where the pain came from, that it wasn't just about Carl. It wasn't just about this brief relationship. It was about living under settler colonialism and the despair that that can bring, the the suffering, the violence, um, the loss of land, the loss of culture, loss of life. Under settler colonialism, it is so important to to maintain really strong relationships and mm. to love and to be loved, that's necessary for me in order to get through this, you know? The poem is expressing something that feels so similar to me to this desire that I've had since childhood. You know, I'm I'm in this hell mm-hmm. uh, and I want to be there with someone. And it's been like that my whole life. That's, you know, since I was a little girl with my little girl crushes, <laughs> that's what I've wanted. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, I I don't know what my own capabilities are to express all of, you know, the ideas I have inside of me right now. But I'm going to give it a whirl. You know? <laughs> and if it's, if it's terrible, we'll delete this tape. But it's just like... You know, there there will always be forces beyond our control. And I mean, nature, nature is the first force beyond beyond our control, even though I found out from interviewing someone recently that, you know, we animals, plants, rocks, everything, we affect the weather as it affects us, be that as it may. It's like, how how can you how can you live a good life, even though there are forces beyond your control, even though there are systems that seek to oppress you. And thinking of this with Alice Notley, of whom I know very little, but like by some stroke of brilliant coincidence recently, my best friend from New York uh, said, um, I want you to read this little this little bit of writing and tell me if you think it is good or bad. And she sent me the beginning of The Descent of Alette by Alice mm. Notley. And it's for those people who, like me, you know, don't know very much about Alice Notley or haven't had the pleasure, um, it it has a lot of quotation marks around the words. And it makes the phrasing, it's like, I feel the imposition of her, w- listen, that actually maybe has too much of a negative connotation because you could see it in a positive way too. I feel her power in guiding how I'm parsing the language that she's presenting to me. And that is something that your book did for me too, you know? So I felt a kinship there. But then I look up Alice Notley's Wikipedia page because I am also a person who goes to the internet. (laughs) And one of the first things it says is, uh, she is often thought of belonging to this school, but um, she says she doesn't belong to any school. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, no, you're wrong. You know, like, and when people impose meaning on her words, she says, that's not what it means. That's something that's echoed in your book when you talk about Phil Collins and the song In the Air Tonight and how people have all these interpretations. And he's like, hey, man, I can't validate that for you because I'm not even sure if I know what I wrote. So it's just like I have this whole swirling cauldron, if you will, of, of ideas and feelings that are coming up and little tiny epiphanies. And perhaps we're leading towards a paradigm shift, you know, as a result of reading your book. You know, I think that there's a, a tension for me in wanting to 
<laughs> I, you know, in a way, like we were talking about earlier, I kind of want to control the reading experience mm. um, and make sure the re- reader has the experience I want them to. It's not a great impulse, but it is my impulse. And at the same time, I know from from the experience of having my body as a book of rules out in the world for like six years or seven years um, mm-hmm. at this point, I know that there are readings that readers bring to the book that are just so interesting because they're seeing things that absolutely are in the text, mm-hmm. but I didn't consciously put them there. I I think that that was really influential in the process of writing white magic. This knowledge that there's something that happens in the writing process that I am not controlling. And Mm. maybe it's, you know, maybe it's the power of the universe. Maybe it's, you know, whatever's happening in my unconscious thinking as I'm, you know, focusing on my syntax but something is happening, and when I let go of enough control to let that happen, the results are good. Mm. And with white magic, I let go more and more and more mm. as I was drafting and just you know, thought, okay, what if I just put all this stuff together and see what happens and just trust that something will happen? And that I might not even know what it means, but it might Mm. be interesting. That is the process I eventually settled into in writing this book. And it was so rewarding. It was so so much fun. This has been an immensely rewarding conversation. And for me, and I want to say thank you to you for your generosity. And I want to acknowledge that I don't think I made it easy on you, frankly. Because like, and and I, that only comes from a sincere sense of admiration for for the work that you've done in this beautiful book. And I really am just so hungry to know more. So thank you, thank you for answering all of my questions. And I will I will I will wrap it with just by asking: Is there anything else you would like our listeners to know? Just to know. <laughs> hmm. Gosh, I can't think of anything. I really loved your questions. Thank you very, very much. I'm glad and I just want I want to be a hospitable conversation partner. Um Oh and yeah. I, you know, and I I want I I want it to be good. So um I'm again just, you know, awestruck by what you've accomplished in the book and really grateful to you for today's conversation. Thank you so much. It's been so great to talk to you. Thank you, Alyssa. It's been my pleasure. That was Alyssa Washuda, author of White Magic. Out now from Portland, Oregon Zone, Tin House Books. After the break, we'll ask our editors for their top picks and books for the week. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. This message is brought to you by Anne Michelle, author of Why They Stay. Why do the wives of politicians decide to stay in the marriage in spite of reported scandals, shady deals, and their husbands' sometimes wanton cheating? Political journalist Anne Michaud examines eight political wives whose husbands have cheated and who chose to stay in the marriage, featuring Eleanor and FDR, Jackie and JFK, Hillary and Bill Clinton, Melania and Donald Trump, and many others. Why They Stay has won many awards, including Indie Readers Discovery Award in the Women's Issues category, the National Indie Excellence Award in the Political category, and the Next Generation Indie Book Award. A reviewer said, quote, skillful prose 
makes the dishy profiles an engaging read, end quote. And called Why They Stay, quote, a lively political book, end quote. A second edition of Why They Stay, newly updated with photos, is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon. This message is brought to you by John Worley, author of A Southern Girl. With two biological sons and a promising career, Coleman Carter seems set to fulfill his promise as a resourceful trial lawyer, devoted husband, and dutiful father in Charleston's insular South of Broad neighborhood. Coleman's comfortable life changes forever when his wife, Elizabeth, champions their adoption of a Korean orphan, Soo Yun, later called Allie. Deftly told through the distinctive voices of Allie's birth mother, her orphanage nurse, her adoptive mother, Elizabeth, and finally Coleman himself, a Southern girl brings us deeply into Allie's plights, first for her very survival, and then for her sense of identity, belonging, and love in her new and not always welcoming culture. Esteemed author Pat Conroy called A Southern Girl, quote, the best book I've ever read about Charleston's mysterious and glittering high society. Its affirmation of the enduring power of parental love buying against that enigmatic realm is reverential and stunningly original, end quote. You can find A Southern Girl on Amazon in Kindle, audiobook, CD, hardcover, and paperback. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. We're joined now by our editors with their top picks and books for the week. We have Young Readers editors Vicki Smith and Laura Simeon, nonfiction editor Eric Liebetrau, and fiction editor Lori Muchnick. Starting with Vicki, what have you chosen for us? Well, um, folks who've been listening to this podcast for a while may remember that last year I was super excited about a book called Curse of the Night Witch by Alex Astor. It was this incredible quest fantasy for middle graders. And if they took my advice and read it last year, they will be extremely happy to know that Curse of the Forgotten City, Volume 2, is out for this summer. And it meets the heroes about a month after the end of the previous book. Um, They are sort of coping with everything that happened, and a lot happened. And in particular, Tor, who's the protagonist of the series, is dealing with the the legacy of his encounter with the Night Witch, which has left him with um, a lot of powers that he's not necessarily happy he's got. But because this is a middle grade fantasy adventure series, they are not going to rest for long. And at the beginning of the book, we meet Vesper, who is a silver haired water breather from a place that they've never heard of. And she is telling them that because of the breaking of the Curse of the Night Witch, this has loosed these terrible pirates on the world and their home is immediately threatened. And so they need to go, you know, find a ship and go sailing to get the pirate's pearl, which will help them protect their their home from these from these pirates and of course you know a quest adventure being a quest adventure they go hither and thither and you know looking for this object and that object in a a way that the pace never never slackens um it's super exciting one of the really neat things about the book is that it draws its basis from uh latinx folklore and folk folk tales um so you get that sort of extra richness to to the story in addition to the fabulous adventure. 
Vicki, I was thinking about how middle grade fantasy inspired by folklore is really popular right now. And I'm glad that we're branching out from the you know, traditional Northern European ones. You know, thinking of Taylor K. Mejia with the Paula Santiago books and Kayla Rivera with Cece Rios. But would you say this one is in that vein as well? No. And, and that's one of the things that makes it very cool. I love those books, love them a lot, and we can't have enough of them. But instead of taking a character from here and plunging them into a cosmology that's recognizably of, of this earth, um, like, you know, Aztec um, cosmology or Mayan cosmology. What Aster does is different. She's got this whole new built world that isn't, you know, it's not recognizably earth or earth analog. But what she does is she takes elements from these Latinx tales and blends them into her world building. So the Night Witch was La Llorona. The, the pirates are called the Calavera. They're not the Calaveras of, you know, sort of the Mexican Calaveras, but they, they sort of have that feel. And so it gives the readers a different way of interacting with these stories and sort of, it, you know, it's it's like breadcrumbs for for readers who already know the characters and know the stories, and for for readers who don't, it gives them a different way of entering those stories once they finish the book. Oh, that sounds very cool. Vicky's pick for the week is "Curse of the Forgotten City" by Alex Astor. Thank you, Vicky, for that choice. Next, we have Laura. Laura, what have you chosen for us? So I've chosen All Our Hidden Gifts by Caroline O'Donohue, and she's an Irish um, journalist, podcaster, um, novelist. She's written two novels for adults. This is her YA debut. And I love when a book starts with a sentence that just grabs you. So I have to read um, the first sentence of this one. The story of how I ended up with the Chokey Card Tarot Consultancy can be told in four detentions, three notes sent home, two bad report cards, and one Tuesday afternoon that ended with me locked in a cupboard. I'll give you the short version. So that makes you want to keep reading. And uh, the other thing I have to say is this book has not one, but two excellent covers. I encourage you to go look them up, the original Irish one and the US release. They're both brilliant. So our main character is Maeve, who attends St. Bernadette's. It's a, a girls' school. And she, she's punished by being sent down to the Chokey, which is not a literal jail, but this, this basement room. It's like moldy and filled with you know, old furniture and detritus, and she's supposed to clean it out. And in the process, she uncovers this deck of tarot cards. And she decides to earn a bit of money and kind of increase her social standing at school by doing tarot card readings um, in the chokey, kind of sneaking off. And in the course of one of them, her, her ex-friend, who Lily, who she feels she's sort of outgrown, provokes her and she says, oh, I wish you would just disappear. Anyway, the next thing you know, Lily has disappeared. And so that's where the, the there's a supernatural element to the story. It's got references to Irish folklore. There are a lot of uh, queer characters and this discussion of Ireland and, you know, changing attitudes um, to LGBTQ people. It's, it's just a great book and the voice is really strong. I was thinking, you know, of course, a very different genre, but if you like Louise Renison's Georgia Nicholson books, this one has that same very sort of breezy, conversational, very smooth writing. So, yeah, great book. I think Tarot was such a fun basis for a book. I remember uh, there was a thriller, an English thriller out a few years ago that I've been meaning to read. It's called um, 
The Death of Mrs. Westaway by Ruth Ware about a tarot reader in Brighton, England, who is deeply in debt and stuff. And she gets left a big house, I think, by some relative that she didn't know existed. And, you know, of course, it turns into some gothic thriller, but there's a sort of underlying theme of the tarot that I always thought sounded really fun. That's a great comparison. I love that book, by the way. I love everything Ruth Ware writes, but that one was very atmospheric. Oh, wow. You've read it. Cool. (laughs) I have. Anytime there's a Ruth Ware book, I'm on it. (laughs) (laughs) Laura's pick for the week is All Our Hidden Gifts by Caroline O'Donoghue. Thank you, Laura, for that choice. Next, we've got nonfiction. Eric, what have you chosen for us? My book is called Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering How the Forest is Wired for Intelligence and Hearing. It's by Suzanne Samard. It's a great book for any any nature lover, tree hugger like myself. Samard is a uh, one of the world's leading forest ecologists. And for those of you who read Richard Powers' Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Overstory, as I did, um, there's a character based on Suzanne. And was one of the strongest characters in the book. So I was really happy to read this memoir by her who she grew up in the woods of Western Canada. And she spent a lot of time in the woods by herself studying it. And especially how the trees um, were connected to each other and how they use kind of what she calls neural like physiology to communicate with each other. And they can essentially talk to each other in a way and they can you know, note when there's when there's threats to them, they can connect on, you know, ideas of saving water, um, how they can kind of sense and comprehend what the roots need and they can pass from tree to tree. So when you see one tree, it's not necessarily just standing there by itself. And so she calls these mother trees that have all these links to a ton of different trees called tree hubs um, and how they interact via chemical signals. And it sounds a little weird if you haven't really looked into it, but her research is very convincing. She's been a scientist for four decades And this is a kind of book that really makes you look at something, as some might say, as mundane as a tree, and you can see an entire other world underneath it. Eric, this sounds very cool. And um, I've I've got a book recommendation for you and other people who might have smaller smaller readers in the house uh, who want to share this this incredibly cool sort of information about trees that we're. Getting to appreciate. It's called The Wisdom of Trees by Lita Judge, and it's a picture book that has both brief poems and um, little expository prose paragraphs that are very, they're, they're sort of whimsical and very kid friendly, but they do really do a great job of distilling this research about tree communication and the amazingness of the whole tree ecosystem for younger readers. So you might want to get a copy for your, for your own your own family. Yeah, I absolutely will. Um, And now that you mentioned it, I should mention a book. um, You mentioned that title, It Jogged My Memory. There's a book a few years ago called The Hidden Life of Trees for Adults by Peter Wolleben, who's a German ecologist. And it goes into a lot of what Samar discussed about how they feel and communicate. So that's another book that I would recommend. Yeah. And if we're going to be talking about about, about that book, um, there was a kids version of it um, for somewhat older oh. readers I think, than, than the lead a judge book. It's called, can you hear the trees talking? And it's sort of a young reader's adaptation of the, um, of the hidden life of trees. So lots of tree stuff. 
ooh, tree wrecks flying all over the place. You know, we'll make sure to have all of these titles in the show notes. But for the purposes of our podcast today, Eric's main pick of the week is Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering How the Forest is Wired for Intelligence and Healing by Suzanne Samard. Thank you, Eric, for that very generative choice. Finally, we have Fiction with Lori. Lori, what have you chosen for us? I'm going to recommend a first novel called The Other Black Girl by Zakia Delilla Harris. Harris is a young Black woman who spent a couple of years working as an editorial assistant at Knopf. And this book is sort of an inside the publishing industry thriller about a young woman named Nella, who is a an editorial assistant at a place called Wagner. And she is the only Black person on her floor. And, you know, she's kind of, she feels out of place. She doesn't get all of the subtle cues. Like she talks about how when she first started working there, somebody at the coffee machine said to her, you know, where do you come from? And she started telling a long story about where she grew up and her suburban background. She lived in a very white suburb, but not a sort of you know, sophisticated New York-y place. And after she'd gone on for about five minutes, the guy she was talking to was like, oh, I meant, where did you work before this? You know, so she she didn't have all the social cues that would have come from going to an Ivy League school or growing up in a very privileged background. So she she feels out of place in a number of ways. And Harris has talked about how in the book, she didn't want to write she didn't want to translate the Nella's thought processes for a white reader. So everything, so in a way, and while you're reading the book, you're in sort of a situation like Nella is in of just thinking, am I missing some references here? It's very interestingly done. And then another, you know, as the book begins, another black woman is hired as an editorial assistant and Nella is so excited. You know, she's going to have a friend, she's going to have somebody to go sit over drinks with and, you know, dissect all the microaggressions and talk about everything that's happening, but it doesn't really work out that way. And somehow Hazel, the new woman is more of the white editor's idea of what a black person should be like. She grew up in Harlem and her parents are civil rights lawyers and she she seems to be doing everything she can to make herself into the perfect white publishing company's idea of a black person. And somehow that doesn't entail being friends with the other black person on the floor. So, you know, we're getting into this sort of interpersonal stuff. And then Nella finds a note on her desk that says, leave Wagner now. And suddenly we're in a sort of different kind of book and it's sort of like the movie Get Out, you know, things start happening and there seems to be some kind of conspiracy going on and it turns into kind of a thriller. And it's just very um, fast paced and intriguingly done, yet also just really well written and, you know, a lot to enjoy and a lot to think about. Thank you, Laurie. Though it goes in a different direction from the beginning of the the part about the editorial assistant and at, at a publisher remind me of the, the early parts of Luster by Raven Leilani. And of course that goes in a totally different direction, but it seems as soon as I read this review, I thought of that book. Yeah, of course. Our Kirkus prize winner from last yeah. year, Luster, which is also a great book. That's um, I, I would say, you know, this book is really 
well-written and well-constructed, but it's not quite as literary as Luster. It's more of a, you know, it's a bit more commercial, more mm-hmm. straight ahead, plot driven. But, you know, if, if you like, if you like the sort of inside publishing stuff of Luster, this, you will eat this up as well. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. I cannot wait to read this book. It is The Other Black Girl by Zakia Delilla Harris. Thank you very much, Lori, for that choice. Well, that does it for another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next week. Exciting week. It's our first ever Pride episode of the podcast tied to our Pride issue of Kirkus Reviews magazine. My guest will be Grace Perry, author of The 2000s Made Me Gay, Essays on Pop Culture. Cannot wait to speak with her. Really looking forward to that conversation, and I hope you will join us then. But until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes.